1: At LuckyLandslots.com.
0: Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Even at thirty thousand feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. Dw Void for prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Mets fans welcome back to amazing Avenue audio the show I am Brian thank you for joining me this week Chris can't be here this week so we've called in a member of the bench a longtime friend of the site uh, formerly of USA Today formerly of SNY we were just discussing the late great mostly Mets podcast we have Ted Berg on the show today hello Ted Brian thanks for having me oh it's an absolute pleasure um
0: I hope so. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe it'll be like arduous. You know, it could be it could be difficult.
1: I had a really oh, yeah. good sandwich later. I'm going to run by you. So we, we have at least some good
0: content. That, see, that's I'm probably I'm probably better suited to speak about sandwiches than the Mets at this point. But we'll see what comes out.
1: <laughs> so, you know, uh, myself and a lot of other folks in my shoes found your writing and your podcasting about the Mets. And it's been a couple of years since you've been writing about the Mets extensively. You've been covering baseball on a more national level. So for folks who maybe didn't get to read what you wrote about the Mets this season or just, you know, for our listeners who need a refresher, what did you think of the 2019 season? What were some of the highlights
0: for you? Oh, man. I mean, it was surprisingly fun. so uh, my – I mean, it's, it's honestly – if I'm being honest, it was like a, it was all uh, – baseball was sort of complicated for me this year just because I knew I was uh, in the – process of of first being miserable and then and then going on to to lose my job. Um, so it was uh, really only once I left my job that I was like man wait, I love baseball like I really like baseball and I started watching the Mets every night again. Um, I had been... I've been writing a newsletter that required that I wake up at at 5 a.m. and as it turns out, uh, that's not a great way to watch sports uh, if you need to be up at 5 a.m. and and also have a have a toddler at home. So I really like. I feel bad to say this, but I guess I can admit it now, like I felt like such a poser because I was writing about so many different sports things that I just wasn't watching at all. Uh, you get like, I'm, we try to keep my kid away from the TV. Uh, so, you know, he doesn't go to bed until 8.30. So I'd have like a 45 minute window to watch Mets games and then I'm falling asleep on the, on the couch. So uh, it wasn't really until mid August, um, that I started being able to watch full Mets games again. And, man, they were a fun team. Uh, like, I knew, you know, and I knew it. Like, I called, picked up enough of it to know that. But, like, uh, in seeing all those games, like, what a what a good group of position players they have right now. Like, a good young core. I, it feels like it's it happened so... Um, uh, yeah, for Mets fans, it's not quietly... But for I guess on the nat in terms of like the national landscape, it's not like you know you think back to like the uh, the way the Astros are where like the the Astros had all these guys and every single one that came up well, Altuve and Correa and Springer were all big big deals, um, and it feels like you know outside of a little bit Pete Alonzo, none of these guys was like a mega prospect, right? It's just like just you know now Jeff McNeil is here and and he's a really good major league player and and Brandon Nimmo and and you know not that he had a great year and and. Uh, JD Davis is going to hit however many home runs, and so uh, it just seems to me like such a nice core of players to have moving forward. That uh, I'm psyched. Like, and and that's in spite of myself because I should know better. But <laughs> I'm psyched. I'm I'm like I'm like psyched about the Mets.
1: Yeah, I, I have a one of my cousins married a a big big Yankee fan, and in May or June we were at a family barbecue, and he pulled me aside and was like. Who the fuck is Pete Alonso? Like I never heard of this guy. How is he doing this? And I was like, yeah, it's just, you know, people thought he'd be good, but he's, you know, he's really good. And he says, "And then McNeil, that guy can really hit." I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "And Davis." And he just kept rattling off these players that he was not familiar with, just like what you're saying, you know. And I think that as Mets fans, we got spoiled by the the Harvey Wheeler DeGrom, um you know, progression of prospects actually working out that it right. doesn't feel as weird for us to have position player prospects work out because we had pitching prospects work out. But it's pretty weird to have six or eight of your last fifteen top prospects actually come to fruition.
0: Yeah, and and um all guys, like especially McNeil and Alonzo guys I think were sort of about off the radar nationally but if you look at the numbers, that they were always good. Like McNeil hit at every single level, and you know they sort of—it's—it's um, it's sort of the same thing. Like going back to like sabermetrics 1.0, uh, you know. And I think that uh, a lot of the the way prospects are covered on the internet has almost swung back towards the scouting side of things. Um, but uh, with all these guys, like if you just looked at the numbers, I think you could have seen it coming. Pete Alonso hit a ton of home runs in the minors last year, and that was before they were using the juice ball. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, was there sort of one, one player that you particularly got behind this season? Like it, for me. This was the year of J.D. Davis. He was. It was a yeah. trade. It was a trade. Nobody really wanted. He seemed like an extra piece. But then all of a sudden, like, well, this guy is amazing, and he seems like he's having fun. And so that was my guy. Did you have a guy?
0: See, I, I was going to say J.D. Davis as well because J.D. Davis was kind of a guy I always was into before. Honestly, before he came to the Mets, just um, it fascinates me that the Astros just uh, they've had so much, so many good players. That these guys just get buried in their system, who are clearly major league players. Um, uh, Colin Moran is kind of another guy like that, and it just feels like you know they're they're in this spot where like it almost uh, the development I would guess like it almost like flips like at some point it becomes a hindrance. Because a guy gets a to AAA and he's got nowhere to go, and so when and, and even in the Astro system, it was like a guy gets to a AA and he has nowhere to go because they're so stacked at the major league level. Uh, what always intrigued me about Davis, on top of the fact that he had good minor league numbers, is that uh, he was a college pitcher and and he can throw in the nineties. And so I had always kind of. Um, I, I don't know it was a it was an article I planned on writing and never wound up writing, but um, there's there's a bunch of of position players out there who pitched some in college and and I kind of have the the idea that I think there's probably more value, and I think it's probably the type of thing that will come around because we saw so many position players pitching this year uh, that teams will start carrying guys to be sort of your position player utility mop-up man, like a, a 25th man on the roster who can do a little bit of everything, including throw, you know, 90 and throw strikes over the plate and, and let him hit it and and have an ADRA, um, because sometimes you need a guy to throw two innings with it and, and allow, you know, one run or two runs. Um, and so that was honestly like the, what, what sort of appealed to me about Davis, but then watching him play as much as I did late in the season, I mean, the guy can hit and he's just a, there's something charismatic about his, I like his persona, I guess. Um, I didn't realize while watching, uh, exactly how, how the defensive metrics treated him. Like you, you could sort of see it. Um, and again, it's like a part season of, of defensive metrics. So I don't really know what that's worth, but it does sort of. Uh, pass the eye test with him where he's not a great defensive player. Uh, but that's all right. I mean, the guy can hit. Yeah. Um, and
1: in addition to to J.D. Davis, I think that one of the, the really nice things about this season overall was that you see you, you were seeing guys who weren't supposed to succeed at this level succeed at this level. Like Dom Smith being the the prime example there. Dom Smith was an afterthought two years ago. And was really an afterthought now, but all of a sudden Dom Smith is is, you know, a a productive player. He gets hurt, that's a bummer, and then the walk off at the end of the season. Just a fantastic story. And it seemed like in every corner of the Mets there were those type of stories this year. I, I recently described this season yeah. to a friend of mine as like the most fun season I can remember where the Mets didn't make the playoffs.
0: I, I think that's I think that's fair. I think it's it's that it's these these like sort of young homegrown players playing well. Uh, Dom Smith, man, like I would, I would watch I would watch like a second screen of the Mets broadcast that was just watching Dom Smith watch the game. Like it was just, that was, it always seemed like he was right in the thick of, of all of it. It seemed like, I mean, he he couldn't have handled that better. Like if you think about his, his situation, like he was the guy, he was the Mets top prospect. He was supposed to be the first baseman and he got, uh, you know, he got leapfrogged obviously. And instead of uh, being sour about it, which I, I certainly would be, he was just like totally cool about it, and and seemed like completely happy to 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 sort of be there and be the you know, pinch hit guy and play some outfield and fill in for Alonzo when he missed. And uh, man, like it made it it made it again really fun. Yeah,
1: and you know Smith also had that altercation, which is a strong word, with Mickey Callaway when Callaway first got there. That he was late to a team meeting, and just you know. He seemingly had five or six opportunities to pack it in, and nobody would have really blamed him for packing it in on his Mets career. But he never did that, and thank goodness he didn't. Just super
0: fun. Yeah, I'm so glad. I, it seemed like such an obvious trade candidate too, and I'm so glad they didn't trade him. I hope they don't trade him. I, and I, I know that's sort of silly because they have so many corner players. But I like this one. I, I like this guy. I want to see him. If he, if he's a, if you can, you can find him 300 at bats a year, you know. And and he's a good hitter.
1: And with the 26th man coming on the roster, it uh-huh. eliminates some of the crunch for him.
0: Yeah, I forgot about that. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah.
1: So. um so, yeah, you know one of the things that we like to do on this podcast is to uh say how right we are when we're right about things, and both Chris and I had been really pulling for Carlos Beltran as the next manager of the Mets, and you are a longtime beltran uh supporter slash blamer, and I say that with yes. the tongue firmly in cheek. So what do you think about Beltran as the new Mets manager?
0: I am deeply conflicted um I like I guess uh, this sounds so lame to say, but, like, I said it jokingly to, to Saron on Twitter when he asked me about it, but, like, it's kind of true. Like, I'm happy if Carlos Beltran's happy. Like, if if <laughs> this is what he wants, then good. Like, good. Then, like, yes, Carlos Beltran has done enough for me uh, by playing baseball and being so awesome at it that I want him to be happy. And if he wants to be the manager of the Mets then, you know, good. Then I'm happy that he's the manager of the Mets. But I have been a Mets fan long enough to know how this ends. We all know how this ends. Um, and it's not with Carlos Beltran retiring at 76 years old with a gold watch and 15 all 15 World Series rings, uh, you know, and a Hall of Fame as a player and a manager, right? That's not how this ends. And, and so I don't want – and I'm going to – you know, I, I – I'm going to try not to let this happen, but it's like, I don't want Carlos Beltran, the manager, to color my memories of Carlos Beltran, the baseball player, because those are perfect. Um, and so, you know, I don't like now, now he's going to be this other thing. Now he's going to be this, this guy I get mad at when he pulls out a mysteriously timed bunt. And you know, he's going to pull out a mysteriously timed bunt because even in his best seasons as a baseball player, he did that sometimes. Um, and so yeah. So again, it's it's like it's like this this sort of powerful ambivalence about it, where it's like, yeah, I'm happy. That's awesome. Love Carlos Beltran. Like, I I want him to have this, and I want him to do well. And I think he's a smart guy. And like, I think he really does connect with the young players. And I think that that um, like I think it's a good hire. I don't think that there's. Um, I, you know, everyone's experience and, and all these different things. And, oh, you can't go back to an inexperienced guy because of, of Mickey Calloway. Well, look, it worked out fine with Aaron Boone. It's it's worth – there's, a you know, a dozen examples of it of it being okay to hire an inexperienced manager. So I don't think that's the issue. I think it's, you know, person-by-person person, uh, situation. I think he'll be good at it. I just don't think that there's anyone who's going to have that job uh, forever. And so – at some point, the Mets are going to fire Carlos Beltran, and that's going to suck. Yes, it will.
1: But, I mean, uh, so we were talking about this a couple weeks ago. Would you say the last good Mets manager was Bobby Valentine?
0: No. Um, I mean, I think – I honestly, like, I. I don't know. I think that there's – I think that strategic managing is such a small portion of – what it really is. You know, I think that it's just so much people management. Um, I think that obviously I care, you know, and, and it angers me when it feels like a guy's like doing what, terry collins did to scott rice or or any of these guys that that just get destroyed by overuse out of the bullpen um i thought terry collins was a good manager i thought like it seemed like for when it was going well it felt like the players really liked him like he was able to get the most out of him uh, out of them uh strategically he always left a lot to be desired but i thought uh, i mean you know that the he made the world series and so i would say uh you know, and you can say, well, he had a great team. He did. Um, there's always chicken and egg to it. But I thought he was a, a fine manager.
1: That's interesting. I uh, I mean, you also have spent far more time in big league clubhouses than I have. So I'm sure you have a different sort of um, level of import that you put on certain things than, than someone like me who hasn't spent a lot of time in a clubhouse would feel.
0: Um, uh, I guess. I mean, I think that... Uh, you know, you still don't see the manager really interacting with the players all that much. Like you, you see a little bit of it, but I, I, I still miss the bulk of it. Um, I think one of the things I liked about about Terry Collins was just like how, uh, and this was something from what I understand that he he did not do in his tenure in Anaheim, but just like how earnestly he was trying to protect his guys, uh, at least publicly, you know, uh, forward facing. I think is. Something the players are really into, like, and I think that it's it's sort of the opposite of like uh, Jerry Manuel would just throw guys under the bus, and if you throw enough players under the bus, then the players don't want to play for you anymore. And I, I felt like, uh, and from my perspective, and and it's not, you know, it's it's informed, but it's it's not like I've ever been a beat writer or anything, so there people know way better than me, um, but. It always seemed like Terry Collins, like genuinely cared for his players and genuinely did want to uh, maintain a good relationship with them, uh, and and you know do right by them. Whether he uh, made the right calls out of the bullpen every time uh, is is there's you know there's some questions there. But I th- I always thought uh, he seemed like a good guy.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that for the most part, bringing this back to Beltron, I think that. Beltron as a former player will probably have a good perspective on what a manager is supposed to do for his players. So I mm-hmm. you know, I feel good about that. I also think and you know, not to keep piling on Mickey Calloway, but Callaway was a terrible tactical manager, a terrible manager with the press and you know, I don't I can't speak to how he was as a as a manager of players. But I will say that from an outsider's perspective, I think that even in, a, even in a year when the Mets did pretty well, everybody recognized how bad of a manager Calabay was. And so Beltran's going to have a longer leash than he would have if he was coming in right after Collins or right after um, Willie Randolph or anybody that had some sort of success with the team because Calabay was just that poorly regarded.
0: I think that's fair. I think he also gets a longer leash for being a Hall of Fame caliber baseball player. Like I think that there's just like a a level of respect there, and and I don't know that that should be the case. But I think that it's like, well, this is Carlos Beltran. Like this guy has to know what he's talking about, right? Like there's you know there's uh, there's only so. There's only so low your baseball IQ can possibly be to be that good of a baseball player, um, and I, you know, obviously you saw him play. Like he had an extraordinarily high baseball IQ. He was always, uh, a, you know, very smart on the field. I thought he. There were two times he didn't slide. People will remember that forever. But uh, <laughs> other than that, you know, probably it was because his knees were falling off at the time. Uh, it always seemed to me like he. Uh, you know, very, very aware of what was going on, get very aware of the situations, I think he'll be, I think he'll be fine. I mean, I think he'll be good. And I think you're right. I think that he will get a, a fairly long leash. And I think he'll have a pretty, you know, if they if they make the right moves this offseason, I think he'll have a a good team. And, and that tends to make things a little bit easier on a manager.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't know about you. I was very surprised that he was even willing to take this job because of how, the Mets organization seemingly ran him out of town. Um, but he's, he handled I think a lot he, of grace, you know, when he asked about it. Yeah, he
0: did. I think that um, he wants to – I think he, he wants to live in New York. Uh, he wants to stay in New York. I think he wants to manage, and I think he sees that – uh the other jobs not going to be available anytime soon so i think it's like sort of like oh well this is the one that makes sense uh if you're not going to move and you want to be a manager then you either wait until the yankees fire Aaron Boone and hope to step in then or uh you take this job with a team you know in a place you've you've been before and uh where it's like sort of the devil you know right like you know who Carlos Beltrán and and there was a lot was sort of made about this going into it like he knows what he's getting into. It's not. It's not going to be a surprise when the Mets stuff starts happening,
1: right? Uh, and I do wonder how much of this is uh, possible because of having Omar Minaya there as a buffer again. You know, obviously he and Omar had a good relationship when he was playing for him, and I wonder if Omar <laughs> being in the front office is a, is just a, a comfort for Beltran as well.
0: Uh, I believe that I think that um I think that Manaya has even a little more pull now than he did when they when they first brought him back from what I understand that's like s- sort of third hand knowledge but uh I, I I'm not surprised by that like yeah I think that that's part of it I think Baird also is a, is a guy Bell has a good relationship with yep. so they probably you know sort of maybe gently swayed the will Pons, like hey by the way this guy was like really smart and a good mentor to the younger players and a good dude. And also just for what it's worth, completely worth his contract that you said you were a sucker for signing. So, you know, maybe we should revisit this guy that we, uh, the really like the sort of like patient zero for, um, Mets medical, whatever they do. Um, you know, like a, when, when they had the, the whole thing with him getting knee surgery and they didn't want him to get knee surgery, um, he was right, right? Like, if you look at the course of his career after that, like, he was clearly right. Um, and so, yeah, maybe maybe it was maybe it was Omar Manaya. That's cool. It's like a, a fun twist to the Omar Manaya tenure in, in New York.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's funny, just speaking of Mania, we also, at least when I say we, I mean me, I tend to forget he was in the front office in 99 and 2000 also. So Omar I has really been involved with a real interesting run of Mets teams.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah. The Wilpons, uh, say what you will about them, they, uh, for better and for worse, are extremely loyal people. And, uh, you know, if they, they find a guy they like, they are going to ride or die with that guy. Uh, it usually, it has often gotten them in trouble. Got them in trouble with Bernie Madoff. Got them in trouble with... Tony Bernazard, uh, you know, Omar Minaya is their guy, and it has worked out fairly well. You know, he put together uh, one team that nearly made the World Series and and seems like now a, a trusted advisor at the very least.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, if the Mets do the right moves this offseason, Beltron will have a potentially good first season. Are there any particular things you're looking for the team to do aside from fix the bullpen? Because we all know they have to fix the bullpen and get a fifth starter. But in terms of anything specific, is there a player you really want them to go after? Is there a strategy you want them to approach? You know, well, what are you thinking about for this offseason?
0: You think they have to fix the bullpen? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I think, uh, like, they need a they need a. A Juan Lagares type who's better than Juan Lagares, right? Like that—that that would be a really big thing, I think. Like, I don't think you need a. I think that they have. There's there's almost too much of a crowd to say like, oh, we need our new everyday nine inning center fielder. I think you need like a plus plus defensive outfielder uh, to be your fourth outfielder. Um, so like that's that's not that hard a thing to find, right? Like is is Jared Dyson available or the the current version of like Jared Dyson five years ago, you, it feels like you should be able to go get that. Um, The lineup is like, I don't know. It's good. I don't, I don't know where you're where else you're really looking to like to upgrade offensively. I think obviously defense, they, they have some, some gains to make. And then I would just say just, yeah, bringing in as much, like bulk pitching talent as you can, right? Especially if Wheeler's leaving. Usually you're going to need innings. Uh, it's not, it's not Gesellman. And I think you'd rather have Lugo in the same exact role he worked in last year as one effective bullpen man. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, like you just, it's, it's obviously pitching, but I think offensively, I don't know. Where do you, where do you upgrade?
1: You know, that, that's a question I've been thinking about a lot I think that the only place that seems like a logical or, or an obvious answer is is an almost impossible place to upgrade, and that's backup catcher. You know, if if, right. they, could, if they could have somebody who's not an offensive black hole as the backup catcher, that would be great. But I don't know how you really do that.
0: I think yeah, that uh, that's a tough one, right? Like, and uh, but you want like peak era David Ross when he was like, or like uh, what's his face? Oh, what was the guy's name? Um, Who did he play for? He played for the Mets. I'm blanking on his name. Was it uh, Ramon Castro? Right? Ah, yes. Ramon Ramon, Ramon Castro was like he didn't want to be an everyday starter. Like he had a, why does <laughs> this not this guy not play every day because he could hit um, and. And he just, I, it seemed like he was cool playing once every three games. Um, and so, yeah, like that guy, like if, if you could you could resurrect Ramon Castro from wherever he was, uh, that would be a good fit, you know, like a guy like that. But I think that in, uh, like, I think that there's not a lot of those guys out. It's a rare thing, a, a good hitting backup catcher. Because if you're a good hitting backup catcher, you should you're, be a starting you're catcher. You're starting every you day, know? day. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah the, so yeah, you're right. Um, there's a. I think that you can find someone who's better than Nito, right? Like I think you can. There's a. There's got to be an in between spot there I mean, somewhere.
1: They they had a guy named Travis Darno who's probably better yeah. than Nito, and we all know right. how that went.
0: Yeah, that was. I mean, if you talk about Brody's like botch jobs like that, giving tendering him giving him arbitration in the contract and then cutting him like two weeks into the season is like, that is inexperience. That is like, he, he screwed that up. Yes, absolutely.
1: But I, I agree. I think that, that there is there is somebody out there who is an upgrade over Nito. I just don't know how much of an upgrade, and I don't know if the Mets are going to be savvy enough to get that player. But But we'll see. We'll see about that. Yeah. Um is there anybody in particular you would like to see in terms of a back end starter or or do you do you think there's any chance they go uh they go after Garrett Cole or someone of the like?
0: Uh I don't think I don't think they're going to I don't, no, I don't think they're going to go for Cole. Like I don't think that um there there are too many teams who should want him that will spend way more money than them. I like uh, maybe they'll say they were going for Cole, but I don't think they can spend with the Yankees on that one. I don't think they can spend with the Angels on that one. And so and those teams clearly want him. Um so like they might say they made an offer to Garrett Cole, but they're not I don't think they're going to get him. I'd love to be wrong. He's a he's a great pitcher. Um I, I I don't know. I haven't I haven't uh looked a ton at the the sort of back end starter market. Um there are yeah, it's it's a funny thing because it feels like the best way to play it now is to be like the the smart team, you know, like you want to be the Astros and be the the team that can find that can identify something in Charlie Morton that makes him ready to be not just like capable but awesome, you know, and and, and or uh, a team like the A's where you can revive. Edwin Jackson and Brett Anderson and, and get them, use them for five innings at a time, uh, get value out of them by by limiting them to, to two times through the order and then, you know, turn it over to a really good bullpen. So I almost think that uh, the fifth starter spot like, it's now like this sort of, like, palette for teams' creativity and I I think it's like sort of a test for them the Mets front office here and, and I don't know that they're necessarily, they're obviously not Gonna hang with like the Rays and the Astros and teams like that in that department with how well they can, you know, identify talent and and optimize it. Uh, but you should be able, like, if a well-run team's got to be able to find that guy, you you have to be able to on the on the relative, um, you know, in expense, uh, uh, relatively cheaply find those innings. Like they're out there. There, if you know what to look for, I think.
1: And especially because there are guys like Adam Guttridge in the front office who come with a, an impressive pedigree and a reputation for being able to be that smart front office person who can help you identify a a diamond in the rough. But it just seems like there's this—the the Wilpons have long had a, a hard-on for fame— where they, they want to get the most famous guy in any position to be mm-hmm. on their team. And that's exactly how you don't run a team when you're trying to get a smart deal out of somebody. Right. So I, I, I just hope that somebody in the front office can get in their ear and explain to them why it's better to go after, like you said, a Charlie Morton or someone who has a, who has a clear flaw, but you can find a way around it, versus trying to find the cheapest busted-up superstar.
0: I mean, I would guess, and again, this is not entirely informed. This is just sort of speculative. I would guess that that what you're suggesting, like that that they're sort of. Uh they're they're hard on for fame, um, as you put it. it <laughs> is the type of thing that that trickles into. I like to keep things professional, <laughs> but uh, I actually don't have to anymore. I can just. I heard you curse earlier. I can say fuck on the podcast. Yes, yes, it's amazing. <laughs> um, that's, that's. I think that might be the first time that's happened. Uh, so exclusive. Yeah, that's it. Uh, so uh, I think that probably. uh, that is a that is a related issue because i think that you know yeah you hire sort of like big name and sexy name front office guys to run your analytics department but an analytics department needs more than the guy at the top they need like people writing the computer programs and people entering the data and doing like like i think that there's a big i think that there are Large distinctions in the sizes of those departments across teams, and if I had to guess, I would say the Mets are not shelling out as much money as they could for, uh, you know, the type of. A uh, comprehensive analytics department. You probably want. Like, if I if I had to guess, I'd say if you went and looked at how the Rays are doing things and and how many dudes they have, or I I, sh- I should say people, but it is dudes. Um, it sh- it should be people, um, but how many how many people they have working for them, uh, in in that capacity, uh, coding things, entering things, you know, uh, figuring things out. Like, I I have to imagine uh, the Mets are not uh competitive in that department.
1: Yeah, I think you're you're probably correct about that, unfortunately. Um so yeah, you know, I, I think that the the upshot for Mets fans with with Beltran coming in, with the type of season they had, and with Brody at the helm is that, you know, Brody did some dumb things this this first year out. But I think that for the most part he's still a very well respected person. And you don't know you know, look, everyone's first year on the job is a bit rocky so it's I think that there there is still some optimism to be had there for Brody and you know they they were they were a competent bullpen away from the Nationals not making the playoffs
0: right that is exactly the case yeah I, I mean if they yeah that's uh I think that I think that I, I'm like a little bit skeptical of Brody Van Wagenen still because of Like how very much he looks like, like if, if you could imagine sort of the Wilpon sitting down at a meeting and being like, we need one of these like young Ivy league dudes in a suit who, who, uh, you know, are slick and good at math and all that stuff. And And looks like like Chris Isaac. Right, and like Bro- Brody Van Wagenen walks in, like to negotiate a new contract for Cespedes, and they're like, "There's our guy! Look at him, he's hot!" Right, and and so like I think that like I almost hold his handsome looks against him, if that makes sense. And I, mean, I think I you're also, just in a
1: hair war with him personally.
0: Uh, yeah, he's got good hair. I think it's it might be professional envy. Um, he, I mean, he also sort of just came in with a lot of bravado, right? Like with the the so many moves right off the bat and it felt like a lot of like it felt a little bit like some of those moves, like some of these moves it's like I'm making moves just to be like, guess what? Brody's here and so many of them involved like come on, so many of them involved his own former players. Yes. Um and like I don't even like I don't necessarily hate that. He knows those guys, so like Maybe that makes sense to some extent, like you if you know this guy uh, is, a, is a good person and you know he's dedicated and you know what he's looking for. Like, I don't know that, that that's the worst aspect of it. It's just it wasn't always the best. I don't know. It wasn't always the best luck.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. All right, so I I have a quick game of over under for you to play here. Um yes. we're gonna we're gonna set it at twenty five games, and we're gonna say Jed Lowry starts for twenty
0: twenty. Uh, I I was shocked to learn like the what was it the last week of the season when he played?
1: Well, he pinch hit. He never played the field. Yeah,
0: but it was like it was like wait a minute he's he's back. Um, I'll go over. He's got to go over over.
1: All right, same number, a Cespedes starts.
0: Under. I wish. I wish it would be over. I wish it would be way over. I love him, and I miss him, but it's going to be under. I think under.
1: Okay. Um, let's put it at...
0: Remember how cool a Cespedes was? Oh, man. I, the guy I just... <laughs> bought a prized pig at yeah. auction, and then he ate it. Like, that yeah. guy rules. he he's the coolest guy he's like literally the coolest guy i just want him playing and hitting monster homers i yeah i i hope he's okay i hope he gets better i don't know what's what's going on like I i don't know but just like i i i don't i don't it's like you forget he was even a thing but man that guy was awesome
1: you you want to know how cool Cespedes was? The Amazing Avenue staff and fan base can be a bit too cool for school at times and we were gathering at a Midtown bar during every play, every away playoff game in 2005. As it, sorry, 2015, rather. Goodness gracious, 2005. And, um, like, half the folks that showed up, half of these hipster baseball fans, were wearing compression sleeves. That's how cool UNSS but yeah, was. Yeah, He right. got dorks yeah. to buy compression sleeves. The
0: guy smokes Marlboro Reds. Like, it's it's <laughs> absurd. Um, and he, like, listens to sad cowboy music at his locker sometimes. It's just, like, whatever's going on with this guy is, like complex and cool and like i just want to hang out with him i just that's it i just want to hang out with him i want to like go to his ranch and party and like ride his horse all right um that's not a euphemism (laughs) i
1: I didn't think it was and okay we we all we all want to ride horses with you and right we we all want to be fake cowboys with him for a day yeah like absolutely all right um let's put it at uh let's see uh three over, under, number of back cover, uh, back page headlines that are negative to Beltran before the All-Star break.
0: Oh, way over.
1: Okay. And uh, final question. Uh, let's call it 15 Robinson Cano home
0: runs next year. Over. Over. I think is going to have a really nice year next year. I think that uh, he is a way better player than he was this season. I thought... I actually... I didn't hate that that trade as much as most people did. It was it, it was a lot to give up and it was a lot to take on. Um, Cano, with or without the, the PEDs, like even if you look after he came back from the suspension last year, he's really good. He's always been good. That was his. What we watched was his first subpar season of his entire career. I know he's getting up there, and here's. Uh, I think he's got. I think he's got some life left in the tank. I think that would be my bold prediction for the 2020 Mets: is that Robinson Cano has like a 20 to 25 homer year and like a 120 OPS plus.
1: I think that sounds about right. My bold prediction for the year is that Brandon Nimmo is going to have the second highest OPS plus in the outfield,
0: behind Conforto.
1: I think behind Conforto, yeah, but yeah. he he's going to have a really really solid season next year.
0: Yeah, I buy that. I think I think Nimmo is a really nice player. Like he he obviously got off to the awful start last year and and had the injury issues and stuff, but like I think he's a he's a real major leaguer. I think that's a that's a building block for the Mets.
1: Yeah. I can't help but feel optimistic about the team. You know, I'd feel more optimistic if the Nationals didn't just win the World Series. But I think so much of that team. Is yeah, walking. but now
0: they're now they're all leaving. Yeah, yeah. I mean maybe not. Maybe and like they, I think they'll bring at least one of these guys back. Like they'll bring Strasbourg or Rendon back probably. Mm-hmm. But can they bring them both back? Uh, you know, uh, and, they're also a very old team. Yeah, they were a very old team. Uh, yeah, I mean, and and it's not like they were a powerhouse, right? It's not like they were the Yankees or the Astros or the Dodgers, where it's like, oh, they're just going to win a hundred games for the next five years. Um they were uh I, I I sort of liked the Nationals in spite of myself this year. They were a weirdly enjoyable team to watch, but uh they were not. I don't think they bite. And I don't think even like I, I don't know I'm not know who to ask, but like they were just not like the best team ever or anything like right. that. Like they were the team that they were the classic example of your team that gets hot at exactly the right time. Yes. Um I mean, they were not nearly as good a team as the Astros, right? They just they they beat them. Like that's that's baseball. Sometimes you you the inferior team wins in a seven-game series. They yeah. won. All credit to them. Uh, that's the point, right? Like that they, they won. But I don't think that uh, in there, if you played if they played 162 games against the Astros, I think the Astros win more than than half of them for sure.
1: Oh, absolutely you know and uh i i could not in good conscience root for the nationals because i'm a mets fan but after the osuna thing i really didn't want to root for the uh for the astros either you know i, I it was a, it was a tough series but i kind of resigned myself to the nationals winning and then they went to the white house and just proved Oh god! All, yeah. all the bad baseball yeah. stereotypes to be true.
0: I mean, that's the thing is like, and and obviously the Osuna thing is like a it's that is is more than normal. That's bad. Like that was, and I was with you on that. But like, there are going to be people you don't. Uh, I don't want to even say that because like I don't want to compare what Osuna did to what like Kurt Suzuki did. That's not reasonable. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> but like, I just think like once you once you start putting too much. Stock and faith into like, oh, this guy's character versus this guy's character versus this guy's character, you know, and like letting that dictate how you root. Like ultimately, you're gonna be disappointed because they're all just human people, right? And so, like, obviously, that's not to excuse uh, Ozuno or the that awful, like, what a what a horribly handled. Flap that was, and like what a embarrassment and a and a disgrace for the Astros organization and a disgrace for
1: Major League Baseball. Yeah, like
0: I know Steph Abstein, like she's just like that's just not someone who that, like obviously she's been vindicated but like she is just not someone who is gonna like make up a story and put herself in the middle of it it's just like not that's not what happened there like i i I knew that like as soon as as soon as it came out i was like well that's obviously not true like that you know and then uh like that she fabricated it which is like just such a a horrible thing to do to be like that's your default um and, and like i'm you know just that that's your like your your knee-jerk reaction is like let's discredit the journalist who wrote this story about our horrible assistant vice president who is defending our horrible closer um so yeah so like that that was all uh horrible um that said like i i do really enjoy watching altuve and bregman and correa and springer and like those are all guys i have interacted with some and and found very pleasant and and smart and interesting and so like I do kind of root for the Esters. So, like, that was, it was, it was like sort of a, uh, it was a, mm, like a 50 50 World Series for me. Yeah. It was tough. Um,
1: but let's talk about something fun. You and I have tweeted a bit about our love of weird guitars. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I figure that music is something that you're.
0: You're a, a trombone man too,
1: right? I'm a what man? Sorry. Can you play trombone as well. I, I played tuba. I play a little bit of trombone, but I played tuba all through high school. Yes. I think it's based
0: from your your Twitter picture is you with a brass mouthpiece in the in right? <laughs> no, it's actually a beer. But uh, <laughs> oh, it's a beer. I thought that was a I thought that was a, a trombone mouthpiece. That's what I had said. Oh no, I'm I'm sorry to disappoint, but uh, not yeah, the case. But you're still a lower brass man. At yes, part.
1: exactly. Yes, absolutely. Um, so you know every on. every week we do a, a music recommendation, and so Ted, you're the guest. What should folks be listening to this week?
0: Oh man! Well, I was gonna go a different direction, but because you brought up weird guitars, um, do you, are you familiar with Charlie Hunter? Do you know who that is?
1: I have seen Charlie Hunter play a number of times. Yes.
0: Yeah. So, um, Charlie Hunter, and you know, so Charlie Hunter. If for people who don't know, have you brought up Charlie Hunter on the show before?
1: <laughs> if I have, it's been a couple of years. So I think you're safe. Charlie
0: Hunter is the most mind blowing musician you can one of the most mind-blowing musicians you will ever see live. He plays an eight string guitar on which the bottom three strings are, are bass strings and the top five strings are traditional guitar strings. Um, he has it tuned in sort of a funny way, but he, uh, so he basically plays the bass and the guitar at the same time. And, he's not really, like, giving up much on either. Like, he's, like, impossibly good at both instruments, and he's playing them simultaneously in, like, completely different different rhythms and stuff. Like, it's, it's like, if you play any instrument, but especially if you play the guitar or the bass or the guitar and the bass, and you go watch this guy, like, you will spend the whole time just sort of, like, holding your head in your hands, wondering how this is possible. It makes no sense. Uh, yeah, and... Uh, and he's so good like i was i was i saw a show with him like years ago i i this is when i was in college i was a i interned at at the knitting factory when it was in in manhattan um and i show it was a show with like him and two other people in like a tiny little room in the knitting factory and like in the middle of the show one of the other guys just started calling out other guitar players names and he's just was like if seamlessly going into different like styles of like, like playing like these other different guitar players, um, just like a, a guy, like a mind-blowingly good musician. Like a, a, he was, he must've at some point just like looked at the guitar and been like, I oh, know I'm, I've mastered this. I need to move on to something significantly more challenging. Um, <laughs> and so there's an album. Uh, it's a, This is obscure. I wasn't going to go nearly as obscure, um, but it's it's him and Stanton Moore, who is the drummer in the band Galactic, um, which again, like, I, not a lot of people know, but he is a. These are all just ex- extremely like top end talent guys, uh, and one of my favorite musicians in the world is a is a saxophone player. That's how I learned about. I think this is how I learned about Charlie Hunter. Learned about this this album was through uh, a saxophone player named Skarik, who played in Les Claypool's. Yes band for a while. Fearless flying frog brigade. Yeah, yeah. Um, he plays like electric saxophone. And so as a, I was a trombone guy, and so as like a horn player in general, I just thought like the way he played the saxophone and, uh, you know, ran it through guitar effects and, and ran it through a, a guitar amp and played sort of like metal saxophone. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. So like he in college, I, I like sort of like mimicked his setup a little bit for the trombone. Um, so the three of them are on an album, uh, and the album is Stanton Moore's, and it's called All Cooked Out. And the amount of sound they make for, and like it's 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 all instrumental, um, but it's it's an incredible album. And and it has like a couple songs on there that are just like there. It, it ranges from like the extremely funky to jazzy to like pretty heavy at times, um, and then like just. Completely beautiful at times. Um, so I would go. That would be my my music recommendation. Would be to check out All Cooked Out. Uh, uh, it's like a sort of a jazz funk album by and it's Stan Moore is the guy attributed to the album. Uh, those same three would later become uh, Garage Attois is the name of <laughs> is the name of their outfit. Um, but this was sort of their first. I think it was their first time that they that they all the, the three of them collaborated.
1: That's very cool. I saw him most recently in let's call it twenty fifteen at um Ramapo College here in New Jersey. And uh I was one of maybe twenty five people there. And he was playing in a duo with a drummer named Scott Amendola, who is another amazing drummer. Uh, yeah, I have
0: I have I have seen that guy as well. Yeah. He
1: plays with Nels Klein sometimes as well, Scott Amendola. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was an incredible show. Um
0: yeah. It's a it's a good time. It's like I think it's like it's almost like music for musicians a little bit, you know. Like, it, but it's it's he's good. I mean, that guy's really freaking good. Yeah, um, yeah. So so that was. I was gonna go. I was gonna go more toward my my like traditional. Uh, I was gonna say I was gonna say Capital Punishment, the Big Pun album, just like as a as a <laughs> throwback because it's so good and like I feel like it's gotten lost in like everybody talks like Biggie, Tupac, like there's like the the sort of standard like late '90s rap genre that everybody goes to and that's not I think because he because it was like a slightly different thing it doesn't like it doesn't fall in with the same like the Chronic and the and Enter the Wu Tang and these like classic late '90s rap albums it is like it hangs with all of them. And it is just like lyrically, he is unbelievable. Uh, but that was, that was where I was thinking. Cause you had prepped me for this, but then once you brought up the guitar and weird guitars, I wanted to go to Charlie Hunter. Uh,
1: so I, I was trying to, to follow the weird guitar path that you set down for me, but I, I decided to be, to be as a kind of, as iconoclastic as you were, but in a totally different direction. So um, were you, were you a guy in high school who played like in the jazz band and the pit band and all that stuff in high school? Okay. So
0: I, I did that in college
1: too. Okay. I was, I was the, the bass player in my high school because I went to a very small high school. And so Mm -hmm. I wound up playing bass in the jazz band, the pit band, all of that. And I got to play in the uh, pit for Oklahoma when that was the musical that was done in, uh, in 1999. And so 20 years later, it is back on Broadway. And I, I, Earlier this summer, I was kind of walking around my house, and a song from Oklahoma popped in my head for the first time in like twenty years. Which so, one? Uh, it was, believe it or not. How well do you know Oklahoma? Uh,
0: embarrassingly well.
1: Uh, it's a scandal. It's which an is outrage, not that well, but it's enough. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, which one?
1: It's a scandal. It's an outrage.
0: I don't see. I don't. I don't remember that
1: one. Okay. Do you remember the horrible Persian stereotype character? Uh,
0: yes. Because it's, it's his song. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, so I saw I saw Oklahoma uh, put on by my put on by my high school uh, when I was in. It was my sister was in it. It was my sister's freshman year.
1: Okay.
0: Um, and so what's notable about that is that the guy who played Curly, uh, who was a junior at the time, uh, is Max von Essen, who is now yes. uh, like one of the biggest Broadway stars. Yes. Um, and he just he went to my high school and and sort of like he was like it was like. Like watching this guy in Oklahoma in high school was like what it was probably like watching Albert Pujols play high school baseball. Like right. he was just like this guy is so clearly on another level. Um, so so it was like a very memorable thing. Like just seeing that that performance, and then uh, next year they did cabaret, which is insane. Yes, yeah, so uh, that's High school, school, to school. Do. Put, on, <laughs> put that on in like 1995, but he was the MC in cabaret, and like it really, really, really good.
1: So uh, I'll get back to Oklahoma in a minute, I promise. But a friend of mine still does. He he is a music director for high school musicals. And so occasionally I'll get the call, hey, can you play bass in this pit for me? And a couple of years ago, I played bass in the pit for um, a Beauty and the Beast production. And huh. the girl who was playing Belle was like, I, before he even said anything to me, I was like, who is that? That That's going to be somebody. And she just finished filming uh, West Side Story for Steven Spielberg. He has her playing Maria, and this is her oh, first, amazing. her first ever role. is going to be in a Spielberg production of West Side Story. So, um, I, go ahead. Uh,
0: that is amazing. Can I tell you the best version of that story that I have personally? <laughs> sure. Uh, it's not that great, but it's just I I was in a I played a Pee Wee football game when I was in fourth grade, and walking off the field, I said to my dad, I was like. Remember that kid's name because he's going to be in the NFL someday. And the kid made wound up making an NFL taxi squad. Um, <laughs> but I called it from fourth grade. I was like Disney with Jeremiah Pope because it was a very memorable, memorable name. And you look it up. He has like all the Long Island rushing records. And I was like fourth grade. I was like – and I didn't say that about anyone else we ever played again. I was like, that kid's going to the NFL. He is way better than everybody else on the field.
1: <laughs> so anyway, uh, so I – and this, so I, I had that that terrible Oklahoma song stuck in my head. It's the worst. It's probably the worst song on the, in the show. But I had, so I I dug it up. And there's uh, a new, that
0: poor Judd is dead song is pretty bad. Uh, that's better than you think. Okay, revisit right. that.
1: But anyway, so All what right. I was going to say was, so then I, you know, one of my other side gigs that I do is I write about comic books and shit. And uh, I've been reviewing the
0: Watchmen TV show. I've, I've seen the first three episodes. I just watched the episode three at the gym this morning.
1: I do a podcast on that show as well. Um, nice. But anyway, so uh, the first episode features a lot of Oklahoma. <laughs> uh, I was going to bring it up that Black Oklahoma in in
0: the Watchmen. Yeah,
1: and so this is kind of the year of Oklahoma. So I, I sought out the new cast recording on Spotify, and they have they have taken an orchestra and turned it into a cowboy band that stays on stage the whole show. So it's huh. just like an upright bass guitar. A guy who's playing mandolin and banjo, and maybe and a, and a fiddle player. That's it, and yeah. so it's really good. Like the the cast recording is phenomenal. Um, because that's just, cool. Yeah, they tear yeah. it down to a really manageable, but really like down home country type band. And a play that I kind of enjoyed for nostalgic reasons, you know, I remember, you know, my best friend at the time was was playing guitar next to me in the pits, so we had a lot of fun with it, but I didn't think about the music all that much since then, and you listen to this, and you're like, oh shit, Rodgers and Hammerstein know what they were doing, you know, this right. is a good show. Right,
0: yeah, I mean, I, I so like, I, that is a, a strong opinion of mine, is that like, covers in general are wildly underrated, and that like, uh, like... I guess it's sort of like if you if you think about it in like the way like jazz musicians do, it's like it is a you take the the sort of like very stripped down basic aspects of the song and then you you rearrange it and you make it your own and and you know, different instrumentation and different arrangements and different rhythms or whatever. however you want to change the song, like you can stay true to the song and make it a whole new thing. and really, you're just using the melody. And it's weird to me that. Like that—that that is a stigmatized thing, like a cover song, because I think a cover song can be can be anything. Like I, I love the idea of like the taking. I mean, I, I could I could play you some like Les Mis songs on the acoustic guitar, and they sound cool because it's like a this is a cool song. Um, it's you hear it only in this like very produced sort of lame musical theater way but like musically it's just not a bad song you know and and so like i love hearing things like that like stripped down
1: definitely check it out it's it's especially if there's a song called i can't say no which is is a very is it, yeah, so, I, I remember it it's, yeah it's uh, not aged very well in the uh, 21st century no, but yeah. the arrangement of it is so good it's really amazingly tight and just super cool uh but speaking of covers are you familiar with the bad plus oh yeah so I saw, the jazz, I saw the Bad Plus in Prospect Park in, like, 05, let's call it. And did, it Man, did they the,
0: play it? Because their, their Iron Man cover is, like, one of my favorite things ever.
1: The, the Iron Man cover where they do the inverted chords at the end and it's a major chord? Yeah, yeah not that. Yeah. No. Yeah. But this is before their third record came out, and this cover is the only cover on their third record. But So they're playing, and they start playing this kind of, like, kind of traditional funky acoustic thing. And then it devolves into chaos, and you're just waiting for it, and you realize, oh, this is about to go into the the, the, the melody of Chariots of Fire. Yeah. And yeah. the fucking place erupted. It was as if the okay. second coming Outrageously happened. Outrageously triumphant. Yeah, yes. Yeah, the yeah. place just went nuts because you're so used to hearing this cheesy Vangelis version of it and to have it... Brought into something that's more digestible, and then to be played by these three virtuostic musicians, it was just oh man,
0: well, and like the the way the guy that guy plays piano like no one else in the world right yes. and like yeah. the, like I, I know that I know that cover like and he's got like his left hand is like joan insane, and he's just yes. playing like the very slow part on the right, yeah, it's cool,
1: yeah, so you know i I agree with you, I think a well done cover can totally open your eyes to a song you used to ignore.
0: Right, and be like, you know what? That's actually a kind of a cool song, you know. And when you're like, oh, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, uh, I I think we have we have probably broken Chris's brain because Chris always picks some really good like stoner rock or something, <laughs> and I love that stuff too. But we picked an obscure jazz record and a Broadway cast recording, so. Sorry, Chris. This is what happens when you skip out on the podcast.
0: Yeah, I mean, then there's 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 nothing wrong. Yeah, that, like I I'm I'm a pretty uh, I I, I, should, I say I'm pretty eclectic when it comes to music that I like. But the truth is now it's like. Because of like digital media and Spotify, it's like I listen to the same twenty songs over and over again. It's so well, unfortunate. I was just but, saying this that yeah. when I
1: was when I was in high school and I would you know work every job I could find to order a record I read about in a guitar magazine. I was listening to all this eclectic stuff, and now mm-hmm. that I have the entire world's recorded history at my fingertips, I'm listening to the
0: same Weezer and Beatles <laughs> stuff I was listening to. <laughs> I don't know what to listen to, and I don't know how to get to it, and I don't, and it's just like ah, oh, whatever. Like here's my stupid playlist I have. I'll just listen to this again, or like the radio, the stupid, oh, the Spotify radio function is bad, and it's like ah, oh, I'll just use the Spotify radio function for this one. Um, Here is my yeah. Spotify
1: pro tip: if you haven't done it yet, there's a section called Made for You, and they yeah. give you something called Discover Weekly.
0: Mm-hmm. That
1: playlist is good. The rest of it is trash. Yeah. Discover Weekly is good.
0: Um, and and then a lot of it for me is now like songs that I like that my kid likes, which are rare because like mostly he likes Wheels on the Bus and Five Little Monkeys, and so um, I try to steer him towards like actual music, and he yes. happens to love Sly and the Family Stone. Oh, so like, it's just incredible. Was like I, I like nearly cried the first time he asked our Google Home to play Sly and the Family Stone. So um, so now we listen to a lot of like. The Everyday People radio on Spotify.
1: <laughs> My kids are really into the Beatles, which is predictable. Every kid is into the Beatles. Um, That's cool. But also, yeah, we gotta... their favorite Not on thing. on Spotify,
0: though, right? So, no, so they are now. Gonna... They are now. Oh, they are now. Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, but their big thing lately is, I don't know if you've seen the video for the Wilco song, Everyone Hides, where the band plays Hide and Seek in the video. Oh, no, I have so, not. Like, for little kids, playing hide-and-seek is the best. So when they mm-hmm. see f- f- six guys in their 50s playing hide-and-seek, they think it's the funniest thing in the world. At least once a day, my son walks up and says, everyone hides and pulls my phone out and wants to watch oh, it. Amazing. So, So he's into Wilco, so that's that's pretty that's cool, great. too. For that's a three-year-old, great. that's pretty good.
0: <laughs> that's great, yeah. Yeah. Well, Ted, I mean, if You people... just want to avoid wheels on the bus as much as possible. Yeah. Because it's comfortable. Like, it's to... Yeah. Baby shark was a
1: thing in my household for a little while oh, yeah, because, yeah, of course, yeah, it was. Yeah,
0: but then it became yeah, a nationals
1: sure. thing, and that's even worse. So yeah,
0: yeah, no, I know it.
1: <laughs> so if people want to send you music recommendations and other stuff on the internet, where can they find
0: you, Ted? Um, I am. Uh, I'm on Twitter at ogtedberg. I'm on Instagram, also at ogtedberg. On LinkedIn, I think at just I don't think it's at ogtedberg there. Um, <laughs> it's not the LinkedIn scene, you know. Um, and I, I
1: got I got uh, former met one of everyone's favorite people, the best eyebrows in baseball, Josh
0: Satin, on this podcast by LinkedIn. So yeah, nice. There you go. Um, so yeah, so I'm 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 out and about on the internet. TedGorter is still. Uh, up and running. I'm I'm hoping to. I'm in the process, the very slow process of overhauling it. I'm hoping by uh, sometime in the next couple of months, I'll have like a a more professional looking version of that site.
1: So uh, I'm on Twitter at Brian needs an app, and uh, I've been saving my sandwich question for the end here. But yes. so I was I recently was very excited by a sandwich I saw. It was a turkey and brie sandwich with mm-hmm. a cranberry-orange chutney on it, and sliced green apples. It was supposed to be like a, you know an autumnal sandwich. Yeah. And the sliced green apples were sliced very thin, which I was afraid they were going to be just chunks of apple well, on there. you don't want chunks of apple, yeah. They were thinly sliced. However, I felt they just put way too many apples on the sandwich, and it was an overpowering flavor then. So my question for you is, is there a – um? Is there a hard and fast rule for you with how much fruit belongs on a sandwich? And tomatoes don't count as fruit in this in this example.
0: Uh, no, I mean I, I don't. I would say that I don't really want a fruit sandwich, right? Like I, I don't want the fruit to be the main thing in the sandwich. I, I unless it's some fruit. I, I understand. Do you have you ever had jackfruit? I've never had jackfruit, but I no. understand that that's like a a fairly like it's a it's a versatile enough thing that i i don't even know what it tastes like but i know people like say like oh you can substitute this for like barbecue pork and it will be just as good i don't believe that no Uh, i don't believe that i own a smoker that's that's bullshit right i have heard people who are vegetarians insist that that is the case um it's not but i've heard that uh but i would say yeah like the fruit is it's always going to be. I, I'm. I had a sandwich recently that was a that had fr- it had like a cherry compote on it. It was a lamb burger with uh, with cherry on it, and that was really really good. Um, because the but the fruit is going to be such a strong flavor that I think you want like one layer. Like it's just got to be one thin layer of that fruit. Um, if there's too many apples, then you then you're eating an apple sandwich. I would rather. I think I would always just rather have an apple. Yes. Um, but there's a solution to that problem, which is you just take off some of the apples. Which is what I did, and it went up being yeah. fine. And uh, you have, des- Right? Then you have dessert with your sandwich. <laughs> yeah. you know,
1: I have some other issues with the sandwich, but this isn't a sandwich podcast just yet. So,
0: uh, <laughs> I've never wanted to be. You know where to go. You know, you know <laughs> who to call. I'm around. Just speaking
1: of lamb, random story, but I think you'll enjoy it. So I was talking with another parent at drop-off for my kid my 3-year-old's pre-K program and she was saying like how how good of a, an eater is your son I was like oh, he's not a very good eater at all she goes yeah mine either I sent him in with lamb last week and he didn't even use the mint jelly what monster of a parrot sends lamb and mint jelly into a daycare
0: that is pretty wild that's pretty wild like well I mean I don't know I so, say like we try at least to get Um, our kid to to eat whatever we're eating like we we will always present that as the first option sure and then and then once he's not if it's clear he's not eating it then you then you try to go to plan b so like maybe it was like oh like he really ate he really enjoyed the lamb and mint jelly last night but that seems like ah that seems that seems uh just what about cheerios like just you can always (laughs) just send cheerios you know
1: even if you eat it at home to send that to daycare just seems like a mistake.
0: Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. I mean, it's like, a, it's like is someone going to heat that up for you? Or are <laughs> you going to, yeah, it's, um, yeah, that is weird.
1: That's, a, that's uh-huh. a lunch I may not bring to my office.
0: And, like, maybe, like, yeah, right. Like, maybe you transition the kid into lamb via via gyro. You know, yeah, like you yeah. just yeah, like find a more a more accessible lamb product to get them in there before you're going like full roasted lamb with mint jelly. Uh, like you're like my Scottish grandmother. Exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, Ted, thank you for coming on the show. Listeners, we'll be back next week. We have lots of Amazing Avenue podcasts going up all season long. We'll have an Unformidable for you in a couple of days. And uh, as always, let's go. Vince. Peace.